pick out some verses from chapter 16 and chapter 17 as we kind of listen to the story of a man named Ahithophel. Pronounced correctly, pronounced, pronounced correctly, it should be Ahithophel. But I'm not going to say it that way because it's just too hard, okay? Ahithophel. That's as good as I can do. 2 Samuel 16, verse 15. Then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your advice. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go in to your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. Continuing on in chapter 17. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him, so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone, and I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also. Let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, This time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Skip down to verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. What is it? What is it that sets apart a Christian from everybody else in the world. What is it that truly makes a Christian different from someone who's not a Christian? What would you answer that? I hear Jesus. I hear hope. The Holy Spirit. Let me ask the question again and think and listen. What is it more than anything else that sets apart a person as being a Christian? Jesus says it, this, by this the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another that love is the defining characteristic but here's another question for you how is it that the Christian in the world express the love of God in such a way people will really believe it's legitimate as opposed to some kind of religious verbiage? And it's really easy for us as Christians, and I've kind of realized this over the last week. I, I shared on Wednesday night, that Wednesday afternoon I had a conversation. I had a conversation that was 
with a person who's really having trouble believing in anything beyond God. This person believes in God, but anything else, it's, it's really too much. Um, and there are a lot of questions and doubts. This is a person raised going to church. And I'll tell you what, the biggest issue was that we talked about that came out. It's the fact that there's so much religion. It's the fact that so many Christians get in the way of seeing the truth. And we talk an awful lot about love, but how do we truly express love as Christians? What is, there's another word that I believe is the defining characteristic of the characteristic of love. If we have the fruit of love in our lives, there is something we will be known for more than anything else. And it's forgiveness. You got it right. Forgiveness. The willingness... To forgive people in our lives and it is the hardest thing that we have to do. There's not a single one of us in here this morning who doesn't have someone in our lives that we're having trouble forgiving right now. Someone who has hurt us in some way that maybe we've just put them out of our mind because we're just not going to deal with that, Lord. I'm just not going to handle that one. For those of you who have gone through the pain of divorce, it may be an ex-spouse that you look at and you go, guy's a jerk. She's an idiot. He's a moron. I cannot even... I'm just going to ignore... It may be a... It may be a parent. It may be a friend of yours who offended and walked away. It may be someone with whom you walked in sweet fellowship in church. Maybe even years ago. And somehow that got broken. And so we sit here and go... No, I'll I'll forgive the light stuff. But that stuff, I just... I just got to go on. I just got to go on. I want you to understand, and I think the word is clear about this, that there's no such thing but ju- uh, in, in just going on. We either forgive or it sticks with us. And we may not think about it for days or weeks or years on end. We may just move along and life seem to be okay for a bit, but it always comes back around. It's kind of like heartburn. I mean, that's a great way to think of it. Bitterness is like heartburn. Oh, man, I knew I shouldn't have that burrito. <laughs> Middle of the night. Oh, Red Robin. You know? And bitterness is like that. It, it kind of irks up. At inopportune times, you'd be driving down the road just having a glorious day in the Lord. Everything's great. And all of a sudden, oh, man. <laughs> And you laugh, but you know what I mean when you're driving along and suddenly you have thoughts of that person and you just go, do I always have to deal with this? Do I always have to feel this way? And the Lord would say, no. I think what we're going to talk about maybe the most important thing we've talked about this year and it's this issue of bitterness. I'm amazed how often this comes up in the scriptures. Again and again and again, dealing with bitterness. But let me draw back a little bit and get you... Uh, oh, there's a fly that just died on my nose. <laughs> this is what bitterness will do to you. Right here. I'm going to go wash up. <laughs> a lot has happened in the passage where we are this morning, 2 Samuel 16 and 17. We covered three chapters on Wednesday night. We moved a lot of ground. We, we saw several things happen. Let me sum up very quickly for you. Amnon is dead. Absalom has fled. David is half-hearted. And Absalom moves ahead. Got it? Good. Let's move on. <laughs> Last week we talked about Amnon, the firstborn son of David, how he raped his sister Tamar. <laughs> My man, Russ. Thank you so much.
much. All right. Um, <laughs> that land. Does he do go way back? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave that for the rats. Um, I don't even know where we are. Amnon is dead. Last week we talked about Amnon. Amnon raped his sister, the whole sister of his of his half-brother Absalom. Absalom's a third-born son. Amnon's a first-born son. We went all into this last week, talking about lust and dealing with lust, and Amnon is a, is a picture of that. Well, he raped his sister, and two years go by. And Absalom has a sheep-shearing fest, kind of a celebration, and talks David into letting all his sons come, and when all his sons show up, Absalom murders Amnon. His lust gave birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings about death. That's what the Bible tells us. James chapter 1. So Amnon's dead. After that, Absalom fled. He took off. He left Jerusalem and he went north to a place called Geshur. Geshur is a pagan kingdom within Israel. A tiny little pocket of paganism up in the region of the Galilee. Between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, there was, a, there was this, at that time a little kingdom within Israel. And the king was Telmei. And Talmai had a daughter named Maaka. And Maaka married David. And they had a son named Absalom. So Absalom runs to Grandpa's house. Where he hides out. And he's there for three years. Finally, at the request of Joab, and Joab's pleading, David finally says, All right, all right, bring Absalom back out of his banishment. Half-heartedly, David says, Go ahead and bring my, my son back here. But David is angry. He's angry at what's happened, at the, at the problems that Absalom has caused in his house. And so though Absalom comes back, he lives in Jerusalem but will not see his father for two more years. Now think about that. Maybe like some of you parents having a, a son or daughter who disappointed you greatly and you, you don't want to have anything to do with them. Two years go by, you bring them back into Anacortes or Oak Harbor, but you won't see them. Which is kind of hard to do around here, isn't it? I was sharing on Wednesday night how easy it was in California to go out looking like a skank to the grocery store and nobody knew you. You'd have your teeth not brushed and your hair sticking out. I mean, I don't know how many times I went out to grab an extra box of cereal for breakfast, you know, and I just looked terrible. Had my shorts and my Ugg boots on and, you know, just walked into the store. Well, Anna Cordes, first time I tried to do that, I saw ten people that I knew. So David and Absalom are in Jerusalem, same place, two solid years. They don't see each other. Finally, David does restore Absalom's place in the palace, but it's too little, too late, and Absalom moves ahead. David's dysfunctional family begins to fall apart as Absalom, a son who, by the way, David loved deeply, launches a massive nationwide conspiracy to undermine his father's throne. Absalom wants to be king. And so what's happened up to this point now is Absalom is on the move. He's amassed a great number of people. They're coming into Jerusalem. David, for his part, flees. He is in his late 50s, and King David takes off running. He's never done this before. He always stands and fights. But this time, David runs as Absalom steals away his very throne Absalom, I, I know how he did it. I mean, we see it today. It's by way of personal campaigning, focus groups, and closely following the polls. <laughs> Absalom knew exactly what he was doing. I think he marketed a bumper sticker, you know, for chariots and donkeys. 
know where you put it on a donkey, but he had bumper stickers that said, Impeach David. <laughs> and he stayed around, the Bible says, he stayed around the gate of Jerusalem, and his people came in to bring their problems before the king, which is how they did it. Absalom would go, oh, let me help you with that. The king's too busy for you. Man, I'm a man of the people. I'm right where you're at. What you need is change. <laughs> all about and so Absalom even manages in all of this this undermining and, and he does this over a period of two or three years man he, he even undermines a man named Ahithophel he pulls him from David Ahithophel was David's most trusted advisor Ahithophel was a man who David trusted so much the Bible tells us that when he spoke it was so great the wisdom was so much there David even assumed or, or experienced it as the word of God Man, Ahithophel was right on. They were close, they were tight. And Absalom asks Ahithophel's counsel, and he tells him at the end here of chapter 16, he says, what you've got to do is we'll pitch a tent on the top of your father's roof there where everybody can see, and you one by one take his ten concubines that he left behind, and you go in and you sleep with them in front of all Israel. What? That's just sick. What's the deal with that? Well, that's how the pagans did it. That's how the pagan kings, they came to rule. They would come in and wipe out the former king and they would take all of his wives, his harem, to themselves to show the kingdom that, hey, I'm the boss now. And so following this advice from Ahithophel, Absalom takes his father's concubines and sleeps with them in front of Israel. Lays with them. He doesn't sleep. Just the way it is. It's amazing how graphic the Bible says. Someone, someone on Wednesday said, why do we need Blockbuster when we've got the Bible? <laughs> I mean, there's comedy, there's tragedy, drama, intrigue, chase scenes, romance, conspiracy, and that's all just in Second Samuel 13, 14, and 15. It's all here. By the way, in doing so, in sleeping with these concubines, Absalom unwittingly fulfills a prophecy given to David by Nathan back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. The Lord says through Nathan to David, This is what's going to happen to you and your family. And David, can you imagine? I mean, that's just weird, man. David must have thought it's a metaphor for something else. Don't ever, ever, ever think that prophecy is a metaphor unless the Bible tells you it is. Because the Lord has a way of bringing it to truth. And he does in David's life as Absalom does the very thing he said was going to happen. But Ahithophel takes it up a notch. This trusted advisor, this friend of David, this man who was in David's counsel... Not only says sleep with his concubines, but now, now he takes it up. He says in chapter 17, verse 1, Let me arise and choose 12,000 men, kind of a crack military unit, that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I'll come upon him while he's weary and exhausted and terrify him, so that all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike down the king alone. And I bet you it would have worked. Because David is just at this point fleeing, just trying to get away, and Ahithophel is a smart guy. If we get right on his heels, he won't be expecting it if we strike hard and fast now. And Hithophel says, and I'll kill him alone. I'll take him out myself. It'll be my hand that does the job. And suddenly, this is not political, man. This is personal. This isn't about just Ahithophel shifting allegiances in the political realm. 
This guy is now going after David. Why? What is the deal with Ahithophel? Why would a man like this shift sides so quickly? I mean, it'd be like Karl Rove joining Hillary's campaign. It doesn't make sense. This is a guy who was completely trusted by David. Well, David was a journaler. We know this. Some 80 or so of the Psalms written by David's own hand. Many of them written for the congregation. They're worship songs that he brought to the leader of worship at the temple and said, hey, here's a good song for you. Threw it out there and everybody sang together. But there were many of these psalms that are very, very personal that I kind of think David didn't even expect would ever be read by all these other people like we read the psalms today. Psalm 3 is one of those. Psalm 3, and you might just jot that down in your notes or in your Bible. Psalm 3 is where David expresses his heart, his heartbrokenness over Absalom taking his throne from out from under him. We read Psalm 3 on Wednesday night. Another one that David wrote at this time of despair regarding Absalom's treachery is Psalm 55. But I want you to listen specifically to these verses. Psalm 55, 12. He writes, It is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of, the, of God in the throng. David is talking about Ahithophel. My friend. My advisor, man, we, we walked together. You were my equal. When you spoke, it was as if I was thinking. I mean, we saw eye to eye. You were mano y mano. We went to church together. Worshipped in the same bar, to temple. We shared life together. You were my good friend. I could handle it, David says, if it was from the outside. Some big strong army coming against me, no big deal. I can handle it if it was one of my proclaimed enemies, but you're my friend. Ever been there? Ever walked in those shoes? Man, I can handle persecution from outside the church any day, but when it comes from within, it's the most painful of anything. When it comes from within my own family, my own friendships, when someone turns on me, it's like, how do you deal with that kind of pain? How do you handle that? How can this thing be? David didn't see it coming. He didn't see the, the, the shift here of Ahithophel until it happened. And it blew him away. What happened to make this man defect from David to Absalom? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 5.21, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you're good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Interesting, Ahithophel's name means my brother is foolish. And at some point in his life, which I believe we can see in the scriptures, Ahithophel's attitude towards David changed. And it wasn't when Absalom usurped the throne. I believe it was a decade earlier. That Ahithophel saw something and in his heart said about David, You fool. You fool. Why would Jesus say calling someone a fool puts you in danger of the fires of hell? Because the moment a friend becomes a fool in my eyes, a seed has been planted. A seed of bitterness. A root of bitterness begins to take hold. 
Ahithophel was angry with David and bitter toward David for years and David had no idea. How do we know that? A closer look into the word shows us why Ahithophel may have been so bitter toward David that he would do this. Two small verses, 2 Samuel 23-34, that gives us in a genealogy, it tells us that Eliam was the son of Ahithophel the Gilanite. Eliam was Ahithophel's son. Then 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3 tells us something a little stunning. It tells us who Eliam's daughter was. Her name was Bathsheba. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Ahithophel watched as David pulls Bathsheba into his bed. Ahithophel watched as somehow, amazingly, Bathsheba's father at that same time gets put on the front line and murdered in battle. He watches as David then brings Bathsheba into his household and she bears a son and it dies. He, his closest, his closest counselor, watches as David struggles with that and realizes that child is David's. Ahithophel knows. And for a decade, he's carried that bitterness with him. No wonder when Absalom turns on David, no wonder Ahithophel switched sides. Ahithophel could have said the same thing to David that David wrote in Psalm 55. He could say, you were my equal. We walked side by side. How could you do this to me? How could you hurt me like that? We went to church together. You were my good friend. Now I ask you again, ever been there? Not in the place where you've been betrayed by a friend, but in the place of you betraying a friend. For you see, as much as we have been betrayed and hurt by others, guess what? We have betrayed And we have hurt others in our lives as well. And we might not even know it. David didn't realize this. David didn't see it. It went deep into the heart of Ahithophel where bitterness took root. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it many be defiled. I have one point this morning. A bitter root produces deadly fruit. Remember that. A bitter root produces deadly fruit. All bitterness needs to grow in our lives is time. That's all it needs. Time and us ignoring that it's really there. Time and us just putting it out of our minds. And with Ahithophel, this thing was brewing for nearly a decade. When we think we can just ignore bitterness, shove it down, pretend like it's not there, gang, it is there and it will grow a deadly fruit. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31. This is a familiar verse to many of you. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, that's good. That's good. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I want to make sure I don't grieve the Spirit. So how do I avoid grieving the Spirit? Listen, he says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Which means, the best way to grieve the heart of our Father is to be bitter towards somebody else. The best way to grieve the Holy Spirit is to let bitterness seethe inside of you. And anger and clamor and slander and malice to grow up in you toward another person. That guy's a jerk and I will never forgive him. That is how you grieve the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Paul says, no, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Yeah, but if I forgive them, they're going to walk all over me, probably. If I forgive them, they're not going to learn their lesson. Maybe not. If I forgive them, if you forgive them, 
you'll be like Christ. It is the number one thing that can set a Christian apart in this world, the willingness to forgive, where forgiveness is not earned, is not deserved. Oh man, you can't forgive. You've got to make them pay. Forgive them. Paul says, forgive each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. We talked about that Wednesday. That is huge. That's huge. How has God forgiven me? Oh, eternally. There's nobody who's hurt me bad enough that I can't forgive. Especially in comparison to how massive the forgiveness is toward me from the Lord Jesus. Now you might say, well... But how do we deal with this? I mean, Ahithophel has a right to be angry. Once you realize that he's Bathsheba's grandfather, you go, no wonder he was ticked. Man, if I was a grandfather and my granddaughter was abused in such a way, I'll tell you what, if my own daughter was, I got an email i got to share with you from Jim Crouch. Sorry, Jacob, it's not your fault that you're your father's son. I, you know. About two weeks ago, and if you were here, you may remember this, but uh, Jim wrote me an email and said, I was just wondering if Hannah could come over sometime this week and bake some cakes for Jacob. <laughs> now, if you didn't hear the message where I talked about that, <laughs> you need to ask Jim afterwards. And, and, and the uh, email I sent back to him was, yeah, that'd be great. Um, by the way, my son Corey wants to invite Jacob to a sheep sharing that we're going to be having. <laughs> Man, I love email sometimes. That was funny. Ahithophel had a right to be angry. He had a right to be upset after what happened to his granddaughter Bathsheba. But the Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, but don't sin. Anger's not the issue. Anger's okay. It's going to happen. We're going to be angry about things. Jesus turned over tables in his anger. Anger's not the problem, it's sin. Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. You see, Jesus didn't walk into the temple and look around and see all the selling going on and the buying and the, and the, the ruining of his father's house. He didn't see all that and go, oh man, that just ticks me off. I've got to go back to the Galilee for a while and think this one through. No, no, I just can't think about that. I can't think about what they did. He didn't go back up to Nazareth and hang out just going, oh, I'm so mad about that. No, Jesus dealt with it immediately. The Bible tells us in the book of Luke that Jesus walked in the temple and saw these things and left and went home. And the next morning he walks in and he begins to clear it out. I wonder what Jesus was doing that night in between. I guarantee what he was doing was praying about it. But he did not let the day go any further. He dealt with his anger. Allowing anger to run unbridled in our lives. Allowing anger to sit there and seethe eventually becomes bitterness and it gives the devil an opportunity. Ephesians 4.27 That's so important to understand. Be angry but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because it gives the devil an opportunity in your life. To create a wedge between you and the person you're angry with. To create even a wider problem than that. We're told back again in Hebrews 12.15 that if root of bitterness springs up, it causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. 
And so it can spread out even beyond the relationship of you, just you and the other person. And the bitter end of bitterness is seen at the end of Ahithophel's life. Chapter 17, verse 23. When he saw his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, arose, went to his home, to his city, set his house in order, and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. But I submit to you that Ahithophel was not, was not killed by a rope. He was killed by bitterness. It was too much. When he realized Absalom wasn't following his counsel and David was not going to be killed. And by the way, killing David wouldn't have helped either. But when he realized the counsel was not going to be followed, and Ahithophel was a smart man. He knew Absalom was going to mess this up and David probably was going to come right back into Jerusalem and retake the throne. And Ahithophel could not imagine being forgiven. Worse than that, I don't think Ahithophel could imagine forgiving David ever. And it killed him. They killed him. A bitter root produces deadly fruit. That's why Jesus, knowing full well the heart of man, spoke wise counsel for handling anger and bitterness in our lives, and it is, in a word, forgiveness. Turn to Matthew 18. Keep your finger there in 2 Samuel 17. Matthew 18. You may recognize as we begin to read this that we have read this several times. In fact, I shared first hour that I almost took this whole section out of the study this morning because I'm like, oh, no, I, I, we've covered that before. But I think we need to cover it again. Matthew 18, verse 21 says, Peter came and said to the Lord, said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Lord, <laughs> up to seven times? Doesn't that number ring true? I mean, Peter knew Jesus liked the number seven. It's a good number. That's a Jesus number. So I'm going to use that number. And he's got to be thinking, I'm going to impress Jesus with this. Because the rabbis in Peter's day, in Jesus' day, the Jewish school of thought was three times is the limit. You forgive three times. And if, you are, if the person comes against you and sins against you a fourth time, you don't have to forgive anymore. They actually drew that out of Amos chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus... And for four, I will not revoke its punishment. So the rabbi said, okay, so that's the measure there, three times. And the fourth time, you get them. The fourth time, you don't forgive. So Peter takes this concept, this idea of three times of forgiveness, he doubles it and adds one, so he's looking pretty good before the Lord. I mean, come on, seven times. This is what I should do, right, Lord? And Jesus says, I think gently, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 490. Well, that's what I read, 70 times 7, which is 490, right? Now, some of you are shaking your heads and going, no, Rick, no, no, he's not talking about 490. He's talking about just you just keep forgiving, right? Well, listen, stop for a minute. If I want to be a legalist, I can be. I want to take the Bible so literally that I think it's 490 times and if Heather sends against me number 491 I'm not going to forgive anymore that's my business so get off my back okay here's the thing how many of us could even keep track of 490 forgivenesses you're going to lose track I'm terrible with counting I mean I just I'm terrible I'm 40 something now I don't know and I have a whole year in between birthdays to keep track and I can't do it the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 that love does not seek its own it is not provoked it does not take into account a wrong in other words love doesn't keep track 
You violate me, you sin against me, I can't, I can't count up to 490. I can't remember that many times. Jesus says, that's the point. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive and you don't look back and think, how many times have I forgiven this dork? How many times have I forgiven this person? Did I say, yeah. How many times have I, 7, 8, 9, 10, 489? <laughs> Nobody can keep track of that. And that's the point. And then Jesus launches into this parable, you've probably heard it, about the kingdom of heaven being compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle with them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That's 15 years average labor. 15 years wages. 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Because that's how they did things. You had a debt, you paid with your life, man. If you can't pay it off... So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which is three months' salary. It's not nothing. I mean, it's still substantial. Three months is still a lot of money. But it's nothing near what the other slave owed. But he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe! And so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. And you know, salary in prison, good. Make a lot of money real fast there. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And by the way, verse 31, we kind of skip over that, but look at what's happened in the parable. There was a problem between one man and his master. That problem was forgiven. This man goes out and is dealing just with his servant. Now all the servants are involved. Now the problem is not just between two men. Everybody's engaged in it. Verse 32, Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Then his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father, Jesus says, My heavenly Father, Jesus says, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You know what debtor's prison is? Debtor's prison is the bitter place of the unforgiver. When we don't forgive someone else, we go to prison. We are bound by our own unforgiveness. We are bound by our bitterness. And I've said this before, forgiveness, and this is just like a whoa, a huge spot. Forgiveness is not as much for the other person as it is for me. When I forgive someone, I am free of the bitterness. I am free of the anger. I'm free. No wonder the Lord says, forgive people. Set them free and you yourself get set free. Because if we don't forgive, we will end up imprisoned by our own bitterness. Now you might say, hey, this forgiveness stuff, that'll preach. You know, that sounds pretty good. That teaches well. But man, it's hard. I can sit here and amen all day long in the barn when we talk about how important it is for Christians to be forgiving people. Yeah, I'm online with that. But then I get in my car and I start driving home and... Erp. I don't know if I can do it, Lord. I don't know if I can forgive. I was... 
walked home after the first hour and I was thinking how often I say, you know, the older I get. <laughs> I say that all the time. Because I'm always thinking that. The further down the line we get in life, the more we see these things. The more we recognize how, how much pain there is. The more we see it in each other's lives, the more we feel it in our own lives, the more opportunity there is for more people to hurt you. Uh, teenagers understand it doesn't just get easier and easier and easier I'm still studying the word and seeking after the father because it's harder now than it was when I was 15, 16, 17 years old how do we do this? Ahithophel literally took his bitterness to the grave but here's the thing so did Jesus Jesus took Bitterness to the grave. When we compare these two men, verse 23 of chapter 17 is really interesting to me. It says, When Ahithophel saw his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city. Just like Ahithophel, Jesus brought wise counsel. Ahithophel was David's most trusted counselor. In the same way, Jesus brought counsel. Ahithophel, we're told in verse 23 of chapter 16, when he gave advice, it was as if one inquired of the Word of God. I mean, it was like spoke by the Lord. He was so wise and so trusted. And Jesus, I, several, several years ago, someone made the comment to me about how, you know, Jesus doesn't quote the Bible that much. You Bible quoting dude, I mean that's great for you. But Jesus, he just kind of taught and talked to people and hung out. He didn't quote the word all the time. And I said he was the word. <laughs> I mean honestly, if Jesus burped, it would be the word. You know what came out, and I don't mean to be offensive, but what comes out of the mouth of Jesus that we see in the scriptures is the word incarnate. It's very different for me. What comes out of my mouth is not the word incarnate. Ask Hannah; she knows. Things I say at home or around where there are things that come out. And, and even up here, which is why I've told you over and over and over, make sure your Bibles are open. Make sure you're listening to the Holy Spirit and not to Pastor Rick, because my words aren't always right. Hey, if I'm wrong about this whole forgiveness thing, let me know. But it's God's Word. And when Jesus came, He came with wise counsel. Such perfect counsel, such perfect teaching, that every word spoke by Jesus was God's Word. Because Jesus is God. But how did our world react to that? John chapter 1 verse 10 says Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He brought wise counsel but it was ignored. Same thing with Ahithophel. He brought wise counsel. He brought it to Absalom. He said, hey listen, first you go in and you sleep with your father's concubines and Absalom goes, that sounds good to me. Wise counsel there. And he goes right in. And then Ahithophel says, send me with this crack squad of military men and we will take out David. I'll kill him myself. And his counsel is not followed. And Ahithophel, in his despair, goes and kills himself. It says in chapter 17, verse 23 again, that he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city. Like Ahithophel, Jesus did that. Jesus saddled a donkey and rode into his city. The story is in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, where Matthew points out that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And I love that about the Word of God. Because we can see things that were, that were written two, three, thirty-five hundred years ago and fulfilled 2,000 years ago. 
It was 552 years before Jesus rode on the donkey into Jerusalem when Zechariah the prophet spoke by God said he will come to you he will come to you riding on a donkey gentle Jesus you might say well yeah Jesus knew that he was fulfilling the prophecy because he knew it of course he did There are many other prophecies that Jesus couldn't have fulfilled by the way where he was born how he died all these things But of course he did Jesus saddled a donkey and rode into his city just like Ahithophel did. Ahithophel, it tells us in verse 23 again, he set his house in order. Jesus gathered his 12 together on the night he was betrayed. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 14 through 17, and Jesus put his house in order. He talked to his boys and said, "This is how it's going to be. They're going to kill me. I'm going to rise again and then then I'm going to head out of here." and you guys are going to do some wonderful things. In fact, you're going to do more powerful, amazing things than you've seen me doing because I go to the Father. Jesus set his house in order. The parallel to Ahithophel is fascinating to me because just like Ahithophel, Jesus strangled himself. What do you mean? What are you talking about? The crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. That's how you die on a cross. You stop breathing. And like a hippophile, Jesus died and was buried in bitterness. A hippophile was buried in his own bitterness. Jesus died and was buried in mine and in yours. That's the amazing thing here. How in the world can we ever forgive people and not hold bitterness toward them because all the bitterness that should be simmering and bubbling in my heart, all of that bitterness Jesus took on the cross. You want to know something fantastic? Jesus didn't just die for your sins, he died for the sins committed against you. That's how we forgive. When we realize Jesus took it, and I don't have to play the judge, and I don't have to make them see their mistake, and I don't have to set myself in the place that says, "You're going to learn." Jesus died for them. And Jesus loved them so much that he did it before they recognized it. He not only freed me from my sin, he freed me from all sin. Without this, I see no way around bitterness. I don't know how people live in this world without Jesus. I would be a bitter mess if not for the sacrifice of my Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> And I'll tell you what, whatever your situation is, whoever has hurt you in your life, however far back you can look and see pain inflicted on you by another, when you look at Jesus Christ on the cross, when you realize the degree to which he has forgiven you, you can forgive them. And God wants you to not so they can get off scot free. He wants you to forgive because he wants you to be free. And we're not free as long as we're holding on to that stuff. And I don't tell you as one who's figured this all out. I tell you as one as one who's walking in this stuff myself. We have a potent remedy against bitterness, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 3:16, "Keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame." For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. 
For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us He put to death the enmity, the bitterness in our lives. Because Jesus carried all the sin and bitterness of humanity to the cross, and because Jesus put it to death there, I now, through faith in His grace, have a different place that I get to live. I no longer have to live in bitterness. I can live in blessedness. And blessedness, gang, is just a religious word for happiness. I can be driving down the road, and when that person comes to mind, I can go, God, take care of them. Father, bless them today. Lord, forgive them as you've forgiven me. Romans 4.7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And that's you, and that's me. And I plead with you, whoever it is in your life that has wronged you in any way, forgive them. Let's bow together. Father, for those of us who have been Christians for any amount of time, Lord, words like forgiveness just become part of our language, and yet and yet, acting on forgiveness is a totally different thing. And so, Father, I pray that by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, you will empower us to be a people who know how to forgive. That this church fellowship will be a forgiving group of people but that individually each one of us Father will learn to forgive others the way you forgave us and the moment that bitterness wells up the moment anger wells up or unforgiveness Father would you just simply give us a vision in our minds of Jesus on the cross would you help us to hear those words that that he spoke Lord that you spoke Jesus from the cross forgive them they don't know what they're doing Oh Lord, how often I'm in that place. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a clue. And yet you forgive me. May I learn to do the same. If you're not a Christian this morning, as we pray, this is what it's all about. The love of God expressed in ultimate forgiveness. And if you would like to be forgiven of sin in your life, and if you would like to learn how to forgive others by walking with Jesus... I invite you to pray with me this morning in your heart to the Lord. Just pray, Father, I believe that Jesus went to the cross for me. And I believe He died in the bitterness that comes out of my life. And I believe His death brought about the forgiveness of my sin. And Lord, I confess this to you that I am a sinner and I need you. And I don't want to walk around with the weight of anger and unforgiveness anymore. And so would you forgive me, Lord, and teach me to forgive others as I follow you, my Lord and my Savior, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.